Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargreaves. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. We're reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we'll be talking to Stephanie Draper, Chief Executive of Bond, about the current state of play for international development charities. And in Charity Changed My Life, later, we'll be hearing from the Kiradungu refugee settlement in Uganda about how ActionAid is driving women's empowerment. But first of all, Russ, tell me about your big interview last week. Well, Third Sector doesn't let me out and about very often. They tend to have me chained to my desk here in uh, Haymarket Towers. But I was allowed to go to Petworth, which is a rather grand stately home in West Sussex, to go and talk to Hilary McGrady. Petworth House, is it? Petworth House, yes. Are you familiar? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it is very, very posh. It's not the sort of place that I normally go and meet charity chief execs, so I was pretty pleased to go. And I went off there last week to have a chat with Hilary about the future of the charity. And luckily for you, I recorded some of the conversation. Well, I'd say lucky for you too, because I would have been very upset to have missed out on such a stellar interview for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't want to brave your upset. I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> and was there any particular significance to your choice of location, apart from the fact that you needed to meet her in the grandest possible surroundings? Well, I think that was the obvious explanation, really. Sadly, I didn't get to choose it. The venue was chosen for the launch of the uh, National Trust's 2023 strategy. But, you know, there's an obvious reason why they do this, right? They want to showcase one of these great national treasure buildings that the National Trust looks after every year. One of so many buildings like this, stately homes and grand old gardens. It's a huge charity. It's worth more than half a billion quid every year, as McGrady was keen to point out. And so Petworth House was just one of these many places, luckily quite a short drive from where I live these days, to uh, go and sit down and have a chat. Excellent. And would you like to tell us what you talked about? Well, let's listen to a few clips. Um, So one of the things we did discuss was one of the toughest things the charity has faced in the last 12 months or 18 months was redundancies during COVID, 1,700 people who lost their jobs. And I asked Hilary how tough that had been for her and for the charity. It was the worst thing I've ever had to do in my career. It was awful. But it was necessary to ensure that the organisation could not just survive, but ultimately be able to come out of COVID and bounce back, which is exactly what we've been able to do. And amazingly, even through the worst of times, I was getting emails and letters from members of staff who'd been made redundant saying, this isn't great, but I still support what you're doing. So we have staff who are fundamentally passionate about what the National Trust does and so in many ways they put that before themselves and that's an extraordinary thing but it is also the reason why I'm incredibly proud to lead this organization it's full of people like that that is quite extraordinary actually I mean you do get very very as she says loyal and passionate people who care so much about what they do in charities and even at their darkest moments really she really wanted to emphasize that she was she was still hearing that passion and loyalty and that's not something that's particularly new to me as a reporter I hear it quite a lot as well And interestingly, she went on to say that one of the things that made her most happy was that places like Petworth are now recruiting more curators again, investing in staff, and that bouncing back, that growing again that she'd always hoped the National Trust would be able to do with their recovery. Clearly, that's now taking place. Mm -hmm. I also asked her about how optimistic she was about the state of things for civil society and charities at the moment. And this is what she said. I think civil society and the um, charity sector is never more needed than it is now. And that's a big opportunity for us. Now, of course, there's loads of challenges in there. I think finances are going to be tight. I think people, you know, our supporters are going to find it challenging. But we're never more needed. And that's a good thing, isn't it? We were never more needed than we were during COVID. And I love that. I love that as a sense of 
if you're needed, that's a great thing. If you're not needed, you're struggling all of the time to get someone to give you some attention. So I think we have an opportunity to really step into space where government is struggling. And, you know, the charity sector has a huge part to play. Quite uplifting. It was great. Yeah, no, I mean, she was very uplifting company, actually. She was a real sort of optimist with a big vision for what the charity can do for the future. Very good to sit down and chat to. And one of the nice things about meetings like this, doing it in person, is that you do get a bit more of a feel for the person that you're talking to and a sense of what their character is like. And we got a chance to talk a little bit about her personal interests and what it was like for her to go out and visit as many of these properties set around the country as she can. My work is also my outside interest because my resilience is is supported through getting out into nature, walking, um, actually art is my other big love. So there's a big blur between what goes on in my normal world versus work world. But that's, you know, that is why I, I love this job as much as I do. I get to properties on a very regular basis. I'm certainly at properties at least once a week. And I make a point of making sure I'm out and about and seeing actually work on the ground and and absorbing the beauty that other visitors get uh, to see. That does sound like a pretty great perk to her job. (laughs) You've written a long read, which is on the Third Sector website, is it not? It is. I think Third Sector are trying to get as much value for money out of letting me away from the office for a morning as they possibly could. So we've heard from Hilary McGrady there in person. I did a quick news story last week based on those redundancies and her reflections on the impact that had. And as you say, Tuesday afternoon, a nice long read Full of colour, lots more from that interview went up, which anybody who goes to thirdsector.com can read and enjoy. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking us into your interview with Hilary McGrady. Thank you. Now let's move on to the next part of this week's podcast. We spend a lot of time at Third Sector looking at issues affecting UK-focused charities. So we thought it would make a nice change to cast our eye a little further afield into the international development world. To lead us through the issues, we're very happy to be joined by Stephanie Draper, Chief Executive of the International Development Network, BOND. Stephanie has extensive international experience, having previously worked across Asia for Forum for the Future, where she focused on the changes needed to deliver the UN Global Goals. She's experienced in bringing governments, NGOs and businesses together. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. Great to be here. Well, thank you very much for for joining us today. And first of all, just very curious question. Where does BOND get its name from? Oh, so originally it was the British Overseas Network for INGOs, and so it's a, an abbreviation of that. But now we just use Bond. <laughs> Less of a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> and sitting where you are as Chief Executive of Bond, what do you make of the setup at the moment for international development charities, especially with regarding to future funding? How healthy is everything looking? Well, it's definitely, I think, what we would describe as interesting times. So we are in a situation this year where we're expecting a greater level of need and less resource. So it's predicted that there'll be over 300 million people in humanitarian need this year globally. And yet the UK is in a situation where it is has already cut its aid budget and there'll be more cuts this year. So that's a very specific situation that we're in. So endlessly being asked to do more with less because our members are very committed to creating change and delivering healthcare and education and water and sanitation and responding to conflict and humanitarian need but with further constrained resources, 
due to government cuts and then that sort of wider impact that is impacting the whole charity sector around inflation, cost of living, everything costing that bit more. So in 2021, the ODA budget was cut to 0.5%, which was a cut of 3 billion. We're expecting another 3 billion less spent on programmes like healthcare, education, women and girls programmes, all of those things are going to be reduced by a further two to three billion because we're spending more of the ODA budget on housing refugees in the UK, which is really important, but it does have an impact on our ability to support marginalised communities in other places. Mm, And presumably you're seeing the need going up, that initial figure that you quoted about the number of people requiring humanitarian assistance is that a big increase on previous years it is going up and that's because we're well we have an enormous humanitarian need on our doorstep in terms of ukraine there are rising numbers of conflicts there are sustained conflicts like yemen and syria which may not be getting a lot of attention but are still ongoing and then there's Climate change causing things like famine, vulnerability. So the Horn of Africa, we're on the brink of famine. So those, all of those crises are intensifying. And in a climate changed world, that is going to be further exacerbated. So we have to invest in responding to those crises. But at the same time, we also need to be investing in resilient infrastructure so that local communities are able to respond to their own crises and increase their own resilience. And do you have any insight into how aid agencies and aid charities stop themselves feeling overwhelmed, really? Even those numbers that you mentioned, 300 million people and more facing humanitarian crises, growing with the climate disaster that we're all seeing unfold. What are charities doing in your network to just sort of keep their eyes on the work they're doing and not feeling like the whole thing is pretty depressing? Well, I mean, we have to look at things like 74 million vaccinated children, 63 million people have access to sanitation as a result of our work and UK aid. Those sorts of results and the fact that people partner with amazing local communities on the ground who we are supporting to deliver their own more positive futures is, I think, really enlivening. So it's about seeing the change that our members can support and staying positive about that, but also making sure that that is really about how brilliant people on the ground are and how much resilience they have and how much they are able to do Um, with our support in the same way that we would in the UK. And how is the cost of living crisis affecting international operations, both in terms of the inflated costs of goods and things to provide assistance going up, but also perhaps people and donors here feeling the pinch? Yeah, well, I mean, that will impact on all charities, domestic and international. We've seen a very positive response from the UK public um, being very generous in response to Ukraine and other crises. So that is sustained, but that will impact on all charities and as will increase prices. So obviously we want to be supporting our staff through the cost of living crisis. Um, At the same time, the cost of living crisis is happening 
around the world, we've got inflation at a multi-decade high in most of the countries um, Mm. where our members work. So we're getting more with less. That's exacerbated by the pound being worth less. So again, exchange rates are also impacting the amount of money that we're able to, our members are able to use. It's going to be a tough year. 60% of our members that we surveyed at the end of last year expect it to be worse than last year. And we are genuinely concerned about how much we can do to support marginalised communities around the world. But I think the ethos and commitment is still there to keep moving. But it's going to be tough. And have your members seen those fears come to fruition yet? Or have they been able to outperform their anxiety about sort of falling income? Obviously, we've seen other charities really start to struggle as direct debits maybe go or large philanthropists are being sort of drawn in lots of different directions at once. Does Bond know about how it looks on the ground for those charities at the moment? I don't have a sort of overall picture. I know that there is a lot of nervousness and there is shortage of funding in some areas, less so in others. And we're concerned about further cuts that we still don't know about. So you do get grants from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, your grant may end at the end of March, and yet we still haven't heard about whether it's going to continue, whether it's going to be cut by a certain percent, whether people are looking at closing programmes completely. So that level of uncertainty adds to this vulnerability around the fundraising that I think all charities in the UK are experiencing. Yeah, and charities talk to third sector a lot about that uncertainty, about, as you say, very late notice about whether programme funding will be renewed, the future contracts for staff, both in the UK and even more importantly on the ground in, in countries overseas. Are you still funding those contracts in the expectation the government will give you a bit more money? You haven't heard anything for weeks on end. It's obviously a sort of a, a, a real issue that they're facing. Definitely. And you then have to have those conversations with partners who you've worked with for years, perhaps supporting a a clinic, and that clinic is no longer going to exist. And people on the ground are are not going to have access to maternal health care or whatever it is that is being done. So that's very difficult to deal with that sort of level of uncertainty and disappointment. And do you feel that these um, issues and that reality of people no longer able to access life-saving healthcare or whatever, do you think there's enough visibility around those issues in the press here? Or do you think that more could be done in the media, particularly at a time where domestic issues are perhaps at the forefront of people's minds? Well, we urgently need to be telling stories of things like the famine in the Horn of Africa. People are starving and it's not really seen in our media at all. Interestingly, we did have, when the aid cut, the first round of aid cuts happened, there were lots of stories about, well, what will we lose? We'll lose these this education for women and girls. There'll be all of these people who won't have access to water and sanitation. We'll lose the UK's reputation for being a partner and some and a country that steps up and supports people um, when they're in crisis. And that led to an increase in the number of people who thought that the aid budget should exist and should be bigger. So that was, mm. you know, we were over the 50% mark. And that has sustained somewhat since 
since the first round of cuts. So we're still over 50% of the British public recognising that actually, as a high-income country, we should be working with other countries to ensure that marginalised communities get access to basic services and are able to kind of move into real thriving. And you touched on it earlier, not only has the amount of money available from government fallen, but what that money is spent on has changed a little bit. Most recently, some of it is being used, as you say, in the UK on the the resettlement Ukrainian programme. Going back even back to the kind of the last bits of the new Labour years, we've seen a shift that I'm sure you'll be very familiar with away from just poverty reduction to kind of ways in which trade and development spending can be used to change markets overseas. What sort of impact do those government strategic changes have on development charities? Well, in terms of addressing poverty and inequality and big global issues like climate change and pandemic, the Overseas Development Assistance Budget is a tiny drop in the ocean of what is needed in order to build climate resilient economies and all of that. So recognise that trade and investment are an important part of the solution. But Overseas Development Assistance is the only budget that is specifically designed to help the most marginalised people first. So those who, through no fault of their own, are in vulnerable situations and sort of things like tackling gender inequality, responding to conflict and focusing on the least development countries, that's the only piece of public funding that is specifically designed to do that. And then those people are able to access markets and trade and those sorts of things at a later date. But that's not in a conflict situation. Trade is not a solution necessarily. So we just need to be kind of using the different levers that we have in the most appropriate way. And then the next phase is, how does trade and investment really support sustainable development? So development that's good for people and planet. So how do we not replicate some of the difficulties of the economic system that we have now, but instead have trade and investment that fosters local innovation, decent work, community ownership and sort of real involvement in the economy by the people and also protects our climate and environmental resources. So there's lots to unpick around the sort of shift towards trade. And we would say, firstly, let's um, make sure that ODA is getting to the poorest communities. And secondly, let's make sure that any investment in trade is taking us in a sustainable direction. Thanks. And as you may well be aware, the majority of our listeners are looking at UK-focused issues, working for charitable organisations domestically. What's your view on how UK charities operating in the international and the domestic spaces can work better together? Are there areas for greater collaboration? Well, I think actually we are working well together. So Bond is part of a number of networks, Civil Society Voice Network and the Civil Society Group, where we really are collaborating effectively and and supporting each other by showing solidarity with different issues. So a number of members of the Civil Society Group will come out and support us when we are campaigning against um, the ACUTs or other, other issues. 
I think there are some really key things that we're very focused on at the moment where we need all charities and indeed business and investors and others to sort of come together. And one is around protecting our democracy and our rights and freedoms. So there are various pieces of legislation going through Parliament at the moment that are about reducing our ability to protest or asking any organisation that receives any foreign funding to register and sort of essentially sustaining and maintaining that chilling effect on our ability to campaign, which doesn't have any place in um, a democratic system. And we know that charities, when they are working with government, when we're challenging government, we get to better outcomes. And that is about sort of changing and improving UK society. So we need to be working to protect and campaign on those rights. So that has to be a shared endeavour. Um, I think also we're doing a lot of work in international development on making sure that solutions are locally led. So local communities are making decisions about their own futures. They're not having different things foist upon them. It's much more about ensuring that people are able to make decisions about their own future. Um, And I think that we've been doing quite a lot of learning from the work of the local trust, for example, who are driving that in the UK. And I know a number of other um, domestic charities are. So seeing some of the crossovers in learning about those sorts of transitions um, is really important. Then there's kind of more standard shared advocacy on the things that we all need as charities, how the Charity Commission regulates us, ensuring that charities are included in furlough and the energy schemes that government is putting out there. So there's lots for us to collaborate on. And then the final piece is we are doing a lot of work on ensuring that as organisations we are anti-racist and that is a definite shared endeavour across the charity sector. How could you be working together on that? Um, Well, as part of the civil society group, we've signed up to a set of commitments and a number of the infrastructure bodies have. And so we're working together, holding each other to account, sharing um, what works, um, really kind of ensuring that we're working together. So it's a race to the top so that the charity sector is an anti-racist place and a good place for people of colour to be working. Stephanie Draper, Chief Executive of Bond, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Great to be with you both. Thank you so much. And now we move on to Charity Changed My Life, in which we bring you the stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities. This week's story is quite apt after our discussion about international development. We're about to hear from Razia Yazid Mohammed, a long-term resident of the Kiradongu refugee settlement in Uganda, about how she has benefited from training laid on by ActionAid. Let's take a listen. My name is Yazid Razia, 25 years old, staying in Kiradongu refugee settlement, fled from Kenya to Uganda since 2008 when the war broke out, together with both parents and siblings. I am an activist in the settlement and passionate about women's rights. What I do most with young girls and women in the community, it is to increase awareness on life skills, women and child's rights, 
equality of women and girls to make these young girls independent in our community. I got involved in Action Aid through the office of the Prime Minister, where I got selected to participate in the step-down training. I got skills and knowledge on leadership and resilience. That is to say, I have been able to get abilities to sustain my energy level and pressure to cope up with disruptive change and adapt. I don't know how my life was going to be without attending this training. I really don't know what to say, but um, what I can say, my life was just going to be hopeless. Well, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't. But anyway, that was the verdict of Razia Yazid Mohammed speaking about how training by ActionAid has improved her life and the lives of women and girls in her community. And if you would like your organisation to be featured in Charity Changed My Life, we'd love to hear from you. All it takes is a short voice message from someone who has benefited from your services submitted voice note mailbox. You can find the link to record your message and further guidance in the show notes to this episode. Or you can drop me a line. Details on how to do that are also in the show notes. We really want to celebrate uplifting stories to remind us why your work is so important. That's it for this week. We'll be joined next week by the RNIB and Buttle to get some ideas on how voluntary organisations can work together. So if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know about it. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our guests, Hilary McGrady, Stephanie Draper, and our producer, Nav Powell. Join us again next week. <laughs>